Hi, Tobias Carlisle here. I've launched a new firm called Acquirers Funds. We implement the Acquirers Multiple in a highly liquid, tax-efficient and capital-efficient way. If you'd like to learn more, go to acquirersfunds.com. Are you ready? <laughs> Even though we've been recording for a little while. Sure. Um, I can play along. <laughs> <laughs> Hi, I'm Tobias Carlisle. This is the Acquirers Podcast. My special guest today needs no introduction, but I'm going to give him one anyway. It's James P. O'Shaughnessy, J.P. O'Shaughnessy, noted author, investor, entrepreneur, founder of the multi-billion dollar O'Shaughnessy Asset Management. We're going to talk to him right after this. Tobias Carlisle is the founder and principal of Acquires Funds. For regulatory reasons, he will not discuss any of the Acquires Funds on this podcast. All opinions expressed by podcast participants are solely their own and do not reflect the opinions of Acquires Funds or affiliates. For more information, visit AcquiresFunds.com. I typically say, hey, Jim, how are you? I'm doing well. Thanks, Toby, for having me. How are you? I'm doing very well. You know, I, was, I almost put the black... Uh, zip up on. Oh, I went with the gray at the last minute. Ah, well, <laughs> I've even got the perfect. black shirt. <laughs> I, my my inspiration is Steve Jobs. I'm kidding. Don't 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 do the turtleneck. Mm, never. It, it's I, been I, it's I, been sullied now by. Uh, I, I I totally agree. Plus, I could never do a. Tur- I could never. I can't pull off a turtleneck. I don't think anybody can, honestly. I think you know what? I think he kind of did, but. You know, he he was Steve Jobs. He had a reality distortion field. Indeed. Well, I think you might have one too, Jim. This is a, <laughs> I've, I've I've been going through your, I've been spelunking on your history, and this is uh, this there's some good stuff for this. I'm really looking forward to it. Oh, great! So am I. There's so, some really fun stuff. Wh- where are you now, physically? This is uh, I'm in Palos Verdes, in California. Mm-hmm. So this is actually my home office. Um, but okay. I have a, I have an office in Torrance, which I can see from here because we're up yep. quite high. You can see my <laughs> my spyglass. Yeah, very nice. Is that on? I love I love California. You know, it's uh, I used to uh, when I was still the principal salesperson for O'Shaughnessy. Mm-hmm. I was I would go there every month, and actually thought about getting an apartment there. Um, and I lived there for two years because I went to UC. Um, but, uh, didn't get it because we, I talked about it with my wife and she's like, I know you, what's going to happen is you're going to be tired and say, you know, I'm just going to stay here over the weekend (laughs) and it's going to be February here and I'm going to get mad at you. And I was like, yeah, you're right. If you'd bought in Santa Monica, you'd you'd be up tenfold probably on your, on your purchase now. (laughs) I know, I know. And when I was at, at school at UCSD, I got into Cal, but having never gone there, I mean, physically, and I wanted to get in somewhere where, you know, I was just based on me and not based on my background and stuff. And so I go to Cal and I'm like, oh, I don't like this very much at all. And so I go to see my advisor and she says, she goes, uh, and I'm like, you know, what can I do? And she goes, you were accepted here at Berkeley. And I went, yeah. And she goes, you can go anywhere in the UC system you want to go. And I went, really? And she goes, yeah. 
She goes, this is the hardest of the uh, branches to get into. And if you get into Cal, you go anywhere. And so I just, I was from the Twin Cities. What did I know? So I looked at her and I said, where would you go? And she goes, really? And I went, yeah. And she goes, I go to UCSD, <laughs> which is, is in La Jolla. Uh, and, I, and I went, why? And she goes, you'll see. <laughs> so I went down there and I lived there for two years and then transferred to the School of Foreign Service at Georgetown. So, so I've got your, your, your Wikipedia entry says that you graduated University of Minnesota. I did. Um, the reason I graduated from uh, the U of M was because I met and fell in love with my wife now of 38 years um, and over summer vacation. I loved the School of Foreign Service at Georgetown. I thought it was really great. Uh, had really great teachers, professors, and I fit in perfectly. Um, and so I was very excited about it and everything else. But then my wife, now uh, girlfriend then, uh, had gone to Georgetown, not School of Foreign Service, but to Georgetown University. And I, and I was at a party of, it turned out that we had two mutual groups of friends that, for whatever odd reason, we never overlapped and we should have. Um, so they're like, uh, go talk to Missy Walker. She went to Georgetown. And so the rest is history. <laughs> so hang on. So you went, you were accepted into, into Cal. You yep. went to UC San Diego. Yep. Then you went to Georgetown. This is still oh, undergrad? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then you graduated from the University of Minnesota. Yes, yes, Did indeed. you do a different year in each one? <laughs> no. Um, I, I, I had a very desultory experience. See, uh, because of my family background, um, uh, which I don't know whether you know about or not, but... I know that you're the youngest of six. Yes. So my grandfather, I'm the youngest of the grandsons. I have one cousin who's a granddaughter who is like two years younger than I am. So I was the tail end of the caboose. My grandfather was probably the most successful independent oil exec or owner in the country and at one point the world. Wow. Um, and uh, because and I love this because he didn't trust Wall Street. And this is back <laughs> during the 20s. And every one of his competitors are speculating on margin, a nickel on the dollar. Oh, my God. And, and my grandfather is like, it's all rigged. I know Joe Kennedy. I've met Joe Kennedy. I would not go. I wouldn't do it. I wouldn't do it. I wouldn't do it. They all did. They all went bankrupt. He went and bought every one of them nickel on the dollar. Oh, my God. And, and so he then proceeded to give away 95% of his fortune during his own lifetime. Um, and which I'm incredibly proud of. Um, and, but because of that, right. So there's an O'Shaughnessy hall at Notre Dame and my dad went to Yale because we did some stuff for them. So I applied to Yale, got in big surprise, uh, didn't even have to apply to Notre Dame. Father Hesburgh was at our house for dinner and he goes, aren't you starting at Notre Dame in the fall? And I was like, no, father Ted, I'm not. And he goes, why not? And I went, because you're asking me that question. And he was like, I like that answer. Uh, so anyway, I wanted to that, thus Cal, right? No family connections, zero. And I just wanted to see how good of it. And back then, Cal was like almost like an Ivy. Right. Um, and um, so very circuitous. But so that's would that, another- that would have been the, the, the late 70s, approximately. Yeah. 
Yeah, uh, the fall of 1978. Yeah, yeah, I graduated in May of 1978 from high school and then started college in uh, September of 78. I, I think that's such a good introduction, Jim. I'm going to have to include that all in the actual <laughs> podcast. <laughs> I think we're sort of. I think we're already rolling, so I think we should keep on doing it. I'll record the intro afterwards. Uh, okay. If you want whatever to keep going, wanna, whatever you want to do, Toby, I'm down with it. All right, great. Well, look, look, let's. So you're the, you're the youngest of six, and I, I read on your Wikipedia entry that you got interested in the stock market because you were tracking the thirty stocks in the Dow Jones, tracking the characteristics of them. What, what were you looking for? What were you tracking? So, so this this uh, fits in with the the story about my grandfather. So, my grandfather gave away, like I said, ninety five percent of his fortune during his own lifetime, but the little five percent that he didn't give away became the O'Shaughnessy Foundation, uh, which is a fairly large foundation even today. Um, and they used to have quarterly meetings uh, for the foundation. It was my uncles and my aunts, my dad, were the board. Um, and when I got old enough, right, I was maybe 15 or 16 and I got invited to the big table, uh, which I was very excited by because I loved all that stuff. I was, I I loved conversation and, and all that kind of stuff. And so I was listening to my dad and my uncle John argue about IBM and, you know, they were going back and forth, you know, Irish family, you can imagine everyone, if there were 10 of us there, there were 12 opinions, right? <laughs> uh, so, so, so I'm listening to these guys, my dad and my uncle argue, and I'm like, thinking, they, they don't get this at all. I, I, I think that instead of talking about the CEO and whether he's smart or dumb, or, you know, whether he's making good or bad decisions, the way to look at IBM is, What's it paying? I mean, how much money do they earn? How much do they pay me to own it? Pretty simple, right? Um, so I went down to the James J. Hill, uh, which is a research library. And James J. Hill was one of the railroad barons who also, like my granddad, gave away a ton of his fortune during his life. Um, and it was a great research library. And, and my original, I was very ambitious. And this is, I was probably 17, 18 at the time. Um, and, uh, it got foreshortened because I was 17, 18 and much more interested in girls and <laughs> going to parties and everything else. But my first swing at it was, to, I, I wanted to say, okay, what are the facts, right? What are the facts on it? Just with that conversation that my dad and my uncle John had had that I felt was really wrong. Uh, let's find the facts. And so I did some research and that meant going to a library, no internet, no uh, iPhone to look it up on. Um, and so I went down and asked the librarian, you know, I'm interested in doing some uh, research on, on the stock market. What would you recommend? And she said, well, we, we maintain the S&P t- uh, book of the 500 stocks that are in the S&P 500. Maybe you want to start there. And so she got that for me and I looked at it and I start going through it and I'm like, I'm, I can't go through 500 <laughs> stocks. This is crazy. And, you know, this is back when spreadsheets were paper, right? And I brought one down with me and it was, you know, this wide. And so I thought, you know what? There's only 30 stocks in the Dow Jones Industrial Average. Why don't I do those? That, you know, those those are going to be the biggest, best known blue chips in the country anyway. So let me try that. 
Um, so I started going through and, and doing by hand things like earnings, price to earnings, you know, things like that, price to book, um, dividend yield. Um, and so I did, I think the original work was maybe 12 years. And again, as an 18 year old, you think 12 years, you know, that's forever. Right. Uh, and, and even in that 12 year period, this would have been ending in 78. Um, and of course, now I know that there was that huge bias built into value because of the bear market between 1972 and 74. And then value came back and slayed from 75 through 80. Um, didn't know that at the time, obviously. And so one of the things that I did was I listed them by PE and then I bought the 10 highest and lowest PE, a bloodbath for the 10 highest <laughs> PE, absolute nirvana for the lowest PE. Then I did dividend yield, same deal, highest dividend yield, fantastic. And then I kind of put it on hold. Um, fast forward, graduate, get married, have Patrick when I was 24 years old um, and, and doing research uh, on the market because that was my passion. Um, and now we have computers and everything else. And, and so uh, it's now 92, I think. And I'd done a huge amount of research and, in fact, uh, uh, started to write my first book, which was called Invest Like the Best. Um, and that was because I was a consultant to big pension plans you know, basically cloning the manager quantitatively right? and, and, and then putting that what we call normal portfolio, i.e. a portfolio that had the same factor characteristics as the manager to see if that manager's buying and selling made any difference or not. That was my aha, eureka, I have found it moment because the clones killed the managers, killed them. And why, why was that? It was because we didn't override. We didn't buy and sell based on what was happening in the market at the moment, and the managers did, right? So, you know, managers reacted emotionally. They, they listened to stories. They met a charismatic CEO. Uh, you know, name, name the uh, story, right? Whereas the normal portfolio was just whatever factors, they were the five biggest factors of that manager's portfolio, I used as a screen. And what and, what factors were you looking at at that time? Was it value, momentum, or what, what, what were the all, all all of them, all of them? So I was looking at uh, simple momentum, six month, twelve month. Uh, I was looking at um, all of the factors that we that we still use to this very day. So I was looking at price to earnings, price to book, price to cash flow, uh, price to sales ratio, EBITDA to enterprise value. You know, all all, all the ones that we use. So you would reverse engineer their portfolios to find out what the factors were, and then you would implement those uh, with the system picking the stocks, and then that outperformed the managers because the managers were exercising their own discretion to underperform. Wow. Bingo. And in fact, that's what got me my first book contract because it was I wanted to show people, hey, you have a favorite manager, Peter Lynch, uh, Ken Hebner, whoever your favorite manager is, I'll show you how to clone them. And your clone's going to do much better than the manager because your clone doesn't have emotions. And so McGraw-Hill was like, yeah, we like that. Yeah. Um, and in fact, the book came with a, with a disc for you to be able to do it on your computer. Um, and so that was – but doing that work for the pension plan is what kind of made me become the, the full-time quant. I mean, 
I had written the first paper I ever wrote about the market was essentially behavioral finance before it had a name. Horrible name paper. It's up online somewhere. What, you what know, did you call uh, it? I think it was it's something along the lines of using you, uh, using quantitative models as an aid to systematic errors made by human beings. Or something. It was horrible. Uh, that's, that's not that bad. Horrible. <laughs> I'll send you a copy. It's of not, it. it's it not going to sell, but it's, it's, a, it's a, probably a good name. I got much better at titles. Uh, <laughs> but uh, so, and it, it basically it was, I, I started doing a ton of research. And back then, it was all psychology. Most of it was in psychology. Um, and so there was some, there was a great book about, um, uh, psych psychotherapy and it was called house of cards by a guy by the name of Robin Dawes. And, and it was, it was called psychotherapy built on myth. And he had a whole chapter on comparing, uh, the results of clinical, uh, assessments, i.e. A, a doctor or a psychologist making an assessment of you or the patient and quantitative, uh, empirically derived assessments. And what everyone thought was going to be a floor that the human expert would soar above was a ceiling right. they couldn't even touch. And, and what it really came down to, as we all know now, right, is that the, the deal was it wasn't that the models were smarter or even better because they were based on the human beings uh, factors and what they looked at. It was because they were used consistently all the time. And they accepted an error factor, right? So when we make an investment at OSAM, right, um, we, we make that investment fully understanding that the probabilities that maybe three out of every 10 stocks that we buy are going to lose money because that's what the, the empirical evidence over, in many instances, 80 years shows us, right? And, and so, okay. We'll accept those are good odds. Those are very good odds. Let, let me just back up a little bit because I, uh, I wanted to ask you when I was when I was looking at your Wikipedia entry again, it said that you started your career as a VC. You're a venture capitalist, <laughs> right? Well, kind of. So, so we had a family company that was a real estate company. It was called Northern Properties, and um, it owned a bunch of real estate. Um, not a bunch. Uh, you know, some apartment buildings and a couple of commercial spaces, really. So it's kind of small potatoes, honestly. Um, and my dad asked me to look at it after I was going on and on about how Reagan's original tax cuts were going to decimate real estate and we should sell all of our real estate. And so he was like, you know, as he should be, but I was 24 or 25. And, you got the 12-year back test. Uh, <laughs> right, exactly. And so he, I convinced him, you know, these real estate guys, they, they, they don't believe it's real. And it's interesting because it gets to human behavior again, right? They were so used to the way real estate used to be run and then, interestingly, became to be run again when they overcame all of the things that Reagan did away with in his tax cuts. But at that time, real estate, you were losing a ton of the tax advantages of real estate. And um, even when I went to sell all the properties, which I did, um, I would say, because I felt I owed them a good faith um, negotiation, I would literally say to these men who were you know, in their 60s, hey, I, you know, I know I'm just a kid and everything, but 
if you guys really look at t- Reagan's new tax law, <laughs> it's not good for real estate. And they're like, ah, you're a kid. You, we've been here for so long. So, you know, we lo- you're wrong. We're right. I'm like, okay. Um, so anyway, we sold all that real estate and then I suggested that we invest that in, in startup style companies. Now, not like the tech of today. Uh, so for example, we invested in a sign making company, um, which was a big deal back then, uh, because a, a company that could make a sign rapidly, right? In those days, if you wanted a sign, you had to wait months. And, uh, so this, this new company that we invested in could make a sign using computers. Uh, you know, you could have it that day. Um, and then we invested in a clothing, uh, manufacturer, a whole variety of kind of different one-off investments, but I would not really call it venture capital. So a, a colleague of yours observes this, uh, you've got this instinctive, intuitive, uh, you've already done a back test as a kid, somehow tracking down that data and, and doing a, a back test by hand. He sees that you've got this attraction to sort of quantitative research methods and he says you should use this in a pension type universe. You should, you should try this in pension consulting. And so that's when yeah. you set up O'Shaughnessy Capital Management. That's exactly right. Yeah, my friend um, was the general counsel uh, for a company called Control Data, which no longer exists. Um, It was a result of the conglomerate uh, mania of the late 60s and early 70s, where companies just kept buying other companies, right, and combining. And Control Data had been the result of a bunch of combinations. And his name was Dan Penny. He's still around great, very smart guy. And we were at lunch and he was like, tell me about what you're doing with this stock market stuff. And I told him, and he's like, if you form a company, Control Data will hire you because <laughs> we we would love to have some clarity around because they had a bunch of different managers that were legacy managers from the companies that they had acquired, right? And so again, you've got to put yourself back in kind of the 80s and, you know, not, not many people were using kind of computer uh, analysis and specifically quant and factor analysis. And so that was what kind of got me into the, um, okay, let's, let's, let's take a, let's do an x-ray of the factor profile of these managers. Um, we'll, we'll give the high level to the committee, right? So this, this manager is a small cap manager and they like growth, right? Because the five biggest factors are uh, all growth oriented and their PEs are much higher, which is normal of growth, et cetera. And so we're using those factors to create this normal portfolio. What was really interesting was in many circumstances, the, the manager could get by with basically just saying, we buy good stocks. Right. And, and back in the 80s, people were like, oh, cool, good. <laughs> well, that makes sense. It's better than the bad ones. Exactly. Right. We buy the and ones so, that go up. Right. <laughs> yeah, that, well, that was Will Rogers, right? Don't uh, buy the ones just, that don't go yeah, up. Don't, don't, yeah, don't buy the ones that don't go up. Um, or, or if they don't go up, don't, don't buy, buy them. them. That's, That's it. it. The original momentum investor, right? Uh, Will Rogers. So, um, and so a lot of these committees, right, which had fiduciary responsibilities around these portfolios, honestly, they didn't know whether the manager was a growth or a value or a big cap or a small cap or whatever. And so that was all information that we shared. 
Um, and uh, that was, as I mentioned earlier, that was my eureka moment when I when I had been at that for more than a year and we had quarterly meetings, which, again, back even then I was saying, this is madness. You know, this is noise. We're, we're going to talk about noise here. And and they were like, well, no, 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 no. You know, we, we got to know what's going on in these last three months. It's really important. And I went, no, it, actually, it's not. It's misleading. And I lost that fight. I've gotten a little bit better at that one. But anyway, um, my my uh, aha moment was uh, watching for the nth time all of the clone portfolios, not just one or two, all of the clone portfolios, be they small cap, large cap, value or growth, killing the manager that they were cloned from. Right. And, and I was like, it's all because they don't act emotionally. It's all because they don't second guess. It's all because they just use the rules. And so I decided, okay, I'm going into active management and uh, there you are. And so that that becomes Invest Like the Best, which comes out in, in 1994. You discuss how you can look through, you clone the strategy, outperform the manager potentially, and then uh, you set up a a, fun, a a family of mutual funds, Cornerstone. That's right. Yeah. So in the first version of What Works on Wall Street, um, you know, interestingly enough, uh, I, I, I thought that I, I had very high hopes for What Works on Wall Street because obviously at this time when it's coming out, there was academic work, French Fama, you, you know the drill, um, LSV, all, all the folks there, Cliff, who's my neighbor here in Greenwich, lots of papers, um, but very little for the general practitioner. Um, and even then, the general practitioner wasn't so good unless he was a really big nerd, wasn't so good about following all of the academic research. I was a really big nerd and followed all that stuff. And I thought, wouldn't it be great if we could just go as far back as we can and definitively say, does buying low PE stocks work? If it works, by how much? How often? What are the drawdowns, et cetera? So when What Works came out, um, it inexplicably became a bestseller uh, because you know the book. Very it's, well. It's charts and graphs, right? And um, so O'Shaughnessy Capital uh, literally saw four to five hundred million dollars of assets come over the transom. All of the calls were incoming. And wow. I, I have a guy who started with me in 97, who's my president here today, Chris Loveless. Uh, he, he made the very funny joke that a guy who used to be with me was in charge of private client because we used to take high net worth individuals directly. We take them now through advisors. Um, anyway, uh, he used to joke that Dan was the highest paid phone rep operator in history <laughs> <laughs> because literally all the calls came in, the money came over the transom uh, because it was new. And so we decided let's launch mutual funds. And I had dubbed the two strategies on the growth and value side, cornerstone growth and cornerstone value, and thus the names in the mutual funds. And so what works on Wall Street now is a, is an investment classic in its fourth edition. And I think everybody knows what it is. And everybody will use it as, as I used to use it too, as a reference, what, you know, what are the best performing strategies. But, and I've mentioned this to you before, but there's really, there's a, there's a novel at the start of that book about behavioral investing, which is one of the best, 
I've ever read on the subject. Oh, well, thank you. Thank and I'm you. very glad I, I wrote Quantitative Value after, uh, before I read that, Which because I may not book, have done it. As you know, I, I love that. Yeah, Wes, and I may not have, Wes and I may not have done it if we'd read that, because it's very, very good. <laughs> and I, I don't know that we were charting that much new territory as we were doing it. But uh, at some stage through there, uh, your, you join Bear Stearns, or your uh, O'Shaughnessy Capital Management becomes the, the, the systematic quantitative arm of Bear Stearns. So, you know, that's an interesting uh, story because um, I actually wrote a piece about it. Um, it's at uh, my Tumblr, which is called What Works on Wall Street. Which mistakes you can find. were made, but not by me. Uh, yeah, that's the one. Um, so, um, I, and yes, I, by me. I'm sorry. And, and yes, by me. Yeah, that's the difference of my title. Um, so, it's a, I myself am a classic example of people mimetically copying other people because they're so overwhelmed by the activities of others that they can't help themselves. And this is the perfect example. In 1999, I wrote a piece in April of 1999 called The Internet Contrarian. In that piece, I said, this is the biggest bubble any of us have ever seen in our careers. 85% of these companies are going to go bankrupt. Even the companies that are going to go on to be the winners and I specifically cover Amazon and AOL at the time, even they are probably 90% overvalued right now. What do I do a few months later? Of course, I started an internet online advisor called Netfolio. And, and Netfolio was essentially kind of the first robo-advisor, robo right? Except it was an asset manager as opposed to an advisor. Um, and... So Bear Stearns, I made a deal with Bear Stearns to be the back office. Um, the internet bubble blew up, and the folks at Bear said, you know, we love the tech. We're not really terribly interested in that, though. We, what we are very interested in is you and your team uh, because your track records are really great, and why don't you just come over to Bear Stearns and, and be our quant arm within asset management? And at that time... I'd never worked for another company. I'd always had my own company. Um, and so Bayer was kind of like the only of the big investment firms that I could work for because they, they had a I, – I, I don't I have to choose my terms very carefully here. They had a very entrepreneurial spirit. In other words, they, they tried as best they could for a big investment bank to, to empower people with good ideas – to not wrap them up in red tape, et cetera. Um, and, you know, really kind of a shame when Bear was lost because it really was kind of the last of that kind of company on Wall Street. Anyway, yeah, we moved over to, to Bear, uh, became uh, their systematic equity. They didn't like the term quantitative. Um, and um, rapidly became the largest long-only manager within Bear Stearns Asset Management at my height, when I was leaving, we controlled about 74% of Bear Stearns Asset Management <laughs> long-only equities. Wow. Um, uh, now, there were hedge funds within Bear. There, it, was a, it was really a, an amalgamation of boutiques. Um, and uh, so uh, the, there were a couple other long equity managers. They were traditional fundamentalists. Um, there was a value team and there was a, um, uh, emerging market team, et cetera. But, uh, yeah, we, we had a nice run at Bear Stearns 
great company, lots of really great people. So after Netfolio, because you you you're a, you you journal as you go, do you still journal? Do you still record I, I what do. you do? I do. Um, not so much on the investment side as as on speculative uh, side. So because we have a process which I will not override, right? I you know I'm not going to write Iran market leaders value again, <laughs> and I'm buying uh, cheap stocks with high shareholder yield. Again, right. I'm, I'm going to hold them until they are no longer in the model again. So I, I really can't do much there. Um, but one of the things that I have journaled about and have – let me take a step back. So I am such a quant that it is in my DNA. And I – unless it's a private company – uh, or a new venture, um, I literally can't pull the trigger on a public market investment without there being a ton of empirical evidence on why I'm doing that. So while I was still at Bayer um, in 2006, I started getting incredibly negative on real estate and on CDOs in particular, collateralized debt obligations. And I was walking around telling anyone who would listen to me, if you can short your house, short your house. Don't buy these things. You know, they're bad. But I didn't have any quantitative thing that I could point to, right? So I wrote in the journals, I think it's going to be really, really bad for real estate, and here's why. Uh, because they're making the rookie error of saying you'd be recency bias, right? Real yeah. estate never goes real estate never goes down. Well, yes, it does. If you go back and Bob Schiller up at Yale, who's just about forty-five minute drive from where I am right now, he's he he has all that data and he shows quite clearly real estate can and does go down. Um, anyway, didn't have a quant model, so I didn't do anything. And and you know what happened. Um, and so and I started thinking about it, and I started thinking, wouldn't it be great to come up with some kind of quantitative indicator? So to, to take a step back even further, I'm sorry for – but you kind of have to cover this to cover that, right? So I've always thought – and I and here's where my journals are very helpful because I went back through them a couple of weeks ago, and I've, I've thought this since 1988 was the first time that I wrote the following – sentence. The stock market is a complex adaptive system with feedback. And the reason that it works so well is because people have heterogeneous interpretations of things, right? Toby might buy my Apple stock from me because he has, uh, he's going to get married or he has a child or whatever, and he wants to fund that child's future education. Jim is 58 and has a grandchild, he might want to sell that so that he can help pay for the grandchild's education, right? So neither one of us is wrong, right? I'm right because of why I'm selling it, for the reason I'm selling it. You're right for the reason you're buying it, right? Right. And, th and that's why markets generally clear and why markets are great aggregators of information, right? The, the, the uh, wisdom of crowds type thing. However, I also had a corollary theory that was attached to that, which was how, rarely, maybe call it 10% of the time, things that I at the time and still call information cascades happen. What's an information cascade? 
An information cascade is where all of the information is going in one direction only. And very importantly, all of the investors' interpretations of that data are the same. Objectives are no longer heterogeneous, they're homogeneous. We're all thinking the same thing. Which led me to, to this deep dive study that I've done on mimetic behavior, right? And, and it's, by the way, it's fascinating. And it, it, your head spins because it's really been around. The name is different, right? Mimetic behavior, but Plato talked about it, right? And, and it's the simple version of it is we do things by copying other human beings. Pretty simple. And then we don't know that, right? We don't know we're copying them. And we invent rational reasons for our behavior after the fact. Right. But in, in, in especially in these situations where we have an information cascade, everybody is interpreting that information the same way. Interpretations become homogeneous, right? And the mimetic drive, making the guy who wrote the most bearish article on the Internet start an Internet company, right? So... <laughs> I'm the perfect idiot example here. Um, it overwhelms us. It overwhelms us to such a degree. And, you know, we could do a whole podcast just on mimetic uh, behavior and the transference through memes, right, of behaviors, both good and bad, um, and how they infect the mind, right? And, and I think it was Dawkins who came up with the term gene. He also came up with the term meme. Um, and called it, an, a, you know, a virus of the mind. And actually, there's a book, a good book, of that title, Viruses of the Mind, about mimetic behavior and transference and everything like that. So the reason I have to get into all this stuff is, A, I want to understand why is this happening, right? B, can I quantify it? Is there a way to quantify this? And then C, is there a quantitative signal that I can develop that says information cascades happening, event happened, run for the hills. <laughs> In other words, it happens at at watershed turning points. Right. So, so, so can you apply that to the to the two thousand seven uh, real estate crash, or uh, what, how does the meme manifest in that particular at that particular point in time? So. Let's be careful. I can't empirically yet prove my thesis. So I haven't been able to fully test my hypothesis. Um, dirty little secret, about half of what I do on Twitter is in service to a lot of the research that I'm doing. But I also want it to be fun. <laughs> so um, we have, uh, through the brilliant program that Patrick started, um, the O'Shaughnessy Research Partners, we have some of the brightest machine learning guys in the world on our, our partnership team. And I was on the phone about a month ago with one of our lead guys. And I love engineers because they immediately just start solving the problem, right? They're like, oh, well, we could do this. We could do this, you know. Anyway, so I don't yet have any empirical proof that I could offer to you. My theory is that during the, the, the CDO um, uh, and real estate crisis, that yes, we had information cascades had happened. Um, 
people's interpretation of uh, what was going on became homogeneous, except for very few, which were written about in the great book, The, great, the Big Short, uh, by Michael Lewis, and made a movie, and how they made a movie, an enjoyable movie at that, about that. I mean, that's genius right there. But anyway, yes, that's what happened. What happened was everybody was behaving mimetically. And I sat in on several pitches for hedge funds that were, uh, you know, going long short CDOs. They were mostly going long, mostly with huge leverage. And, and you know, if you learn anything in stock market 101, it's that if you want a prescription that always works if you want to fail, is you use 40 times leverage on illiquid instruments. It's not when you're going to die. It's not if you're going to die. It's when you're going to die. You're always dead. Right. And so, so yeah, that's what was going on then. It's what was going on during the um, the dot com uh, frenzy. Um, and you know, we've got uh, Jamie uh, now works for us, the financial history guy. And I know you know Jamie well. Right. Um, and you know, he he's very good at showing that it went on all the way back to the Babylonians. Right. Anything new and exciting ignites the human imagination as as I understand why it should, right? So in the ordinary course, in the ordinary stock market, it's heterogeneous. We have different reasons for buying and selling, but then in these right. booms and probably also in the bust, we become homogenous in we're all pursuing the same thing. We see that dot com is going to be huge, so we all want to be buying dot com stocks and then it eventually it busts so we all want to be out or short of the dot com. That applies again in real estate and then possibly in crypto in the recent run-up. It becomes sort of overwhelming. And you might be able to use something like Twitter or a web search to either count the number of times that crypto or something like that appears. So I know that Ben uh, at Epsilon Theory has this have, – have, he creates these and I think they're quantitative mind maps of, of news yeah. events that are occurring at any given time. Yeah, I, I, I love uh, Ben and his whole team. I, I By the way, I should hasten to say I disagree with their conclusions probably more than I agree with them. But this is a classic example of a, a practice of mine that I think everyone should get in the habit of. And that is when there's very, very smart people writing uh, very, very smart things, you got to read them. Right. And you, you might not agree with their final conclusions. That doesn't matter. What you have to do, in my opinion, to, to, to ground yourself and continually test the calibration of your mental models is you've got to read intentionally people who you disagree with or you know you're going to disagree with, right? So because the, chance, the, the chances are really good that I could be wrong, right? And, and the, the problem is, is that we begin to think of our beliefs as facts. They're not facts. They're beliefs. And and so challenging a human being's beliefs, boy, you want to you want to see anger, you want to see just pure hatred. Start really poking at somebody about their most deeply held beliefs. It's not a pretty picture. And what you're going to see is, you know, everything from argument ad hominem, you know, O'Shaughnessy, you're a jackass, you're an idiot. You know, you don't know what you're talking about. You don't get it. Uh, yeah, right. You don't get it. You don't I understand. You, you don't. You don't understand. And and it's so funny because 
I intentionally go out of my way to I I know I probably don't get it. <laughs> you know, there's a lot of things I don't get. And that's why you have to try to read as broadly as you can, in my opinion, to to test, continually test, because really things that we think of right as even quantitative rules that have 80 years of empirical evidence, they're still probabilistic. Right. And they can change. Right. So have our bedrock ways of managing money changed? No. Have the underlying strategies evolved? Absolutely. In fact, if you looked at a, say, let's take market leaders value, right, which used to be called cornerstone value back in the 90s. And and has it changed pretty much entirely? Same theme, right? by cheap market leading companies of good quality that have high used to be dividend yield now it's shareholder yield which is buyback plus dividend yield but it morphed through evolution into what i think is a vastly superior strategy and i think if you and i are talking 10 years from now it's going to have morphed again it's like i love one of the things people say about quants you know the 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 throwaway line is well what do you guys golf all day or you know whatever no the research team here is forever doing research, and sometimes it's really unsexy research. Like, for example, we, we have very negative views on price to book as it is currently used. That isn't because we decided we don't like price to book. That was because we're doing continual research and we're saying that there seem to be some problems here. Well, let's talk and, about that a little bit. Your, uh, your, the first edition of What Works on Wall Street, you favored price to sales. And the argument there was pretty compelling. It's the very top line in the income statement. It's hard to game. And everything below that is a little bit more diluted. But ultimately, the, the problem with it is that there are some companies going to have are going to yield more out of the sales. They're going to have a higher margin. They're going to be a better business. And so you end up moving down the, the income statement a little bit. And there are problems with price to book, which I think O'Shaughnessy Asset Management has done the best job of sort of illuminating with a negative uh, price to book, negative equity companies and so forth. So a few years ago now, yeah, the you brought out an article, I'm not sure how old it is, it could be 10 years old, where you suggested that a better approach was some sort of combination of metrics, because then you're not so tied to whichever one. And you make the point that it, it, to, the, to the date that we wrote quantitative value, the best performed strategy, and that was EBIT on enterprise value. But there's no reason why that should be. It could easily be free cash flow to enterprise yield for the next. And, and the way that you avoid that is you have some sort of uh, blend of all of these different metrics because the objective is to uncover something that is genuinely undervalued and not something that merely matches the price ratio, but then how, how do you how do you get comfort with the particular blend or the the combination that you use? Sure. So we we tend to be very Occam's razor around here. Uh, we try to not be terribly fancy in in things. Um, you're not going to see a lot of work out of here on over-engineered strategies or. Um, uh, lots of switching between over uh, weighting one particular uh, factor versus another. So the value composite that we do in fact use, uh, the the factors are equally weighted. Um, and we did that because 
we concluded through research that, you know, we'd be data mining. If, if we're going to be honest about this, it, yeah, of course. It, with, the, with the evidence available in the past, yeah, we can overweight this and voila, it's a, it's a better way to do it. It's also heavily data mined. So um, I'm, I, in, in quant research, it's really interesting to me to see how far it's advanced. I think it's great. Uh, but so there is this continuum, right? And, and, and so there's the one side that I happen to be on, which is the really conservative side, which is for the most part, it should make economic sense. It should be somewhat intuitive. It should, uh, you know, uh, if you asked an intelligent human being, uh, I often use food trucks as my example, you know, would, would you buy that food truck with 100000 of revenue for $10 million? No. <laughs> uh, and thus, that's price to sales, right? Price to revenues. And price to earnings also makes sense, although earnings can be and are endlessly manipulated. Um, price to book, another one. Perfect for the industrial era, not so perfect for the uh, era where symbols are more valuable than real things. Um, and by the way, uh, the, the Travis Fairchild, uh, who did I, – I did a podcast with him, uh, and he wrote the paper, uh, did that piece on price to book. Uh, we have a piece coming out. Uh, will probably be out – I don't know when this is going to air, uh, but – Early when is June. this going to air? Uh, early early June. June. Okay, so it will probably either have just come out or have been out for a bit. If you think that that Travis's piece on price to book was devastating, wait until you see what we're coming out with that Jesse Livermore did. Uh, my hat is off to this gentleman. This guy is one of the most brilliant market researchers I've ever come across. And we're talking... Uh, kaboom! Wow! And uh, so you'll see that uh, when it, when it comes out. But the point is, so we know we tend to be very conservative. We don't over-engineer things. So we knew that we could try to do a weighting scheme on the factors. Uh, the conclusion was, yeah, but we. we Honest-minded data mining, i.e., you're mining it even though you don't think you are. Right. That's why we do all of these bootstraps. That's why we split up the universes. That's why we test it on out of sample. That's why we do because you know, I, Doug Adams, I think the author of Hitchhiker's Guide. I love him. He's, he he wrote some books about other things that are just brilliant. He died way too soon, but uh, I think one of his quotes was, um, "You can't foolproof." anything because you are underestimating the ingenuity <laughs> of your average fool. <laughs> and, and so that's why we have all these other tests, right? Because we could, we could be mining something innocently, and that's, these other tests will show us if that's the case. Even, anyway, I'm sorry. Keep, keep no, going. Go, no, go, no, no, go ahead. Well, my question was just going to be, even, even so, after you create the, the, whatever analysis you bring in, in a value universe, for example, so it's been a, it's been a very rough five years for value. It hasn't performed particularly well. So uh, the factors presumably won't have worked particularly well through that, uh, through that period of time either. That, how do you know then whether you, you've got a price-to-book type scenario on your hands or whether this is a normal cyclical uh, 
normal normal cycle in the market and value will have its day in the sun again? So that's a great question because it gets to what I was alluding to earlier, which is the very non-sexy research that we do here too. Um, that research is taking apart these factors like right down to the studs. We want to see, okay, how many different ways are they defined? You'd be surprised. Uh, if you were looking at something as straightforward as you would think would be straightforward, right, as a P-E ratio, uh, type in uh, the stock of your choice and make it a big one too. So one that everyone knows. Do Google or Amazon or Apple and type it into Bloomberg. Look at the P.E. there, then go over to Reuters, type it in there, look at the P.E. there, then look at what the company says its P.E. is, and then look at it on free websites. And oftentimes you're going to get four different numbers because they're calculating it differently. So one of the things that we do, which is really unsexy, we can't write unless something is glaringly obvious like the price to book. We're not going to write a, a white paper about it because, it's, you know, we find that, yeah, it's okay. Um, but we take these factors down to the studs, we look at the definitions, we talk about, does that make sense? Is it, does this make sense the way they're defining um, EBIT uh, to enterprise value? Is, is this the right cal way to calculate enterprise value, et cetera? And after we do all of that research, that is the kind of research that leads us to, well, in this instance, price to book, we don't use price to book anymore, and we don't use it because we have serious misgivings about it. Now, we could use it if we took Travis's um, uh, corrections into play, uh, but we have something else coming down the pike in this paper that I've talked to you about from Jesse Livermore, um, and uh, that's going to be better. Anyway, so... If the factor itself, right, after we've taken it down to the studs, done the research, done all the homework, is there anything that is smelly or is like being manipulated here, all these things, if it, uh, if it withstands this sustained, you know, uh, assault of, of research, then we think, say, yeah, okay, PE is still fine. Price sales is still fine. EBIT to enterprise value, still fine. So then it becomes a question, as you alluded to, well, you know, value isn't working particularly well for the last five years. Now, the other thing you have to remember, and you of all people know this very well, value is not a monolithic thing, right? right. So, so, so there are deep value guys who don't look at all like us. There are guys like us who are value, yes, but also quality. Also, high shareholder yield buyback. I know it's the, the, you know, it's the enemy of the of a certain group of people right now. Which I, uh, again, it's the Hydra, right? You cut one head off and two grow back. And there, the there argument, are many bad arguments against buybacks. Oh my God! It's you know, and and it's a Herculean task because they just keep throwing them at you, and they're so stupid <laughs> for the most part. And well, that's what happens. And I should. I better take that back because that'll be the quote. <laughs> it uh, won't, I, I guarantee it. Uh, okay, so they, they, they're, they're not paying attention to the empirical evidence, right? So, you know, I have something up on the screen right now, the research that we did, 
and we looked at, um, you know, how how do companies allocating capital, how do they do historically? Well, diluters, people who issue shares, do horribly. They, <laughs> they do about 4% annually worse than the average stock in the universe. Debt issuers, horribly, right? And again, if we were just two guys in a pub talking about this, we'd Come, we'd reach these conclusions, right? Right. And and expansion, empire builders, horrible. Right. Minus four point five percent. Well, why is that? Well, what are empire builders? They're ego-driven CEOs. You know, I'm going to show them that I'm the best. They're right. Not. Um, acquisitions, regular acquisitions, they reduce value. What is the one that absolutely, over long periods of time, adds value? Buybacks at 2.5% annually. And we have the data going back to the 20s. Now, and this but this is to, to this is your this is your uh I forget the word that you use but it's um you're not talking about every buyback because buybacks in buybacks for the most part do tend to be value destroying. You're talking about the particular buybacks, the concentrated buybacks. I'm just blanking yeah. on the word. Yeah, yeah, high conviction. High buyback. conviction, thank you. Um, and, and again, it's not, and, and it's funny because everything is nuanced. One of the other things that we try to do around here, and I think if you listen to Patrick, if you listen to me, if you listen to anyone on the portfolio management team, Chris Meredith, Travis, et cetera, what you're going to find is we try to explain things as simply as we can, but not simpler, right? So, so yes, you're correct. We believe that high conviction buybacks done when the company is in, say, the bottom third of value, in other words, the cheapest third uh, for its universe, that nevertheless has strong financials, that's the quality piece, those buybacks are perfect, right? (laughs) Um, Buybacks done for other reasons or when a company is expensive or for you know, trying to monkey with um, earnings per share so that options, you know, all of those other reasons, most of the reasons people say buybacks are horrible, um, they they don't do nearly as well, right? So, but I do have to take issue with your saying most buybacks are value destroying. That is not That's true. not the case. That is not the case. When you look at buybacks, even including those bad actors, right, who are buying back and, and at high valuations and, and doing that, they still do better, add value over long periods of time. Now, they don't add significant value, but in aggregate, they are not value destroying. And, and that's another thing. Again, all we have is 80 years of proof, and these people <laughs> have their opinions that they're asserting as facts, Right. That's interesting because my, my impression was that the bulk of buybacks occurred closer to market tops and then buybacks tended to dry up as as uh, as markets bottomed. So I don't have the paper right in front of me, and so I'm not going to make a statement that might be wrong. But we have a lot of papers on buybacks, um, and what we have found is that the majority of buybacks happen uh, from 1987 through whenever we published this paper – for instance, happened when the company was in that bottom third evaluation. So the majority were being made good. sensibly, right? Um, Harry Singleton at Teledyne is kind of the poster child for this. Um, but uh, maybe we can put a we can 
put a pin in that and we'll look at the paper. But my recollection is that not it's not true that the majority of uh, of the buybacks are done at market peaks. However, okay. if we're as I'm thinking about this, um, I think we do show that on a dollar base on a dollar volume basis that actually might be right. And again, I'd have to go and look at the research. But the argument that we're making is pretty simple, and that is cheap, high quality, buying back, good, with high conviction. Right. A uh, little bit of a sidestep, but uh, you have uh, several patents. Inc- I do. Including one for a strategic index that I think if you enforce might bring down the entire financial system. <laughs> Cue Dr. Evil. Really? <laughs> so <laughs> how, how many patents do you have? Oh, you know, honestly, I think I have, I think I have five, five, if memory serves me. Um, they're around here somewhere. Um, and your strategic index patent, what, what does that one do so, exactly? So, so that one, uh, that is so funny. Um, I think the and this is from memory. This was issued in 2000, and it was a strategic um, investment strategy using the World Wide Web. Basically, all the robo advisor. It's everything. The kitchen sink. And and so, my feeling on that is it's silly. Okay, so, so yeah, I, I I was going for every advantage that I could have back when I was doing Netfolio, and I thought, why not? Let's get a patent on this, um, and we got it. Um, but I think that to to fight so to fight that war, you'd have to have you know Goldman Sachs money. You'd have to have five hundred million dollars that you're willing to throw because. That's going to be a battle that is never ending, right? Secondly, that's a troll-like behavior. Life is too short. And honestly, yes, I'm very happy that I have that patent and it's fun to talk about. But, I mean, is it enforceable? Mm, I don't know. I, I don't even want to find out because, uh, you know, it would require me to dedicate the rest of my, I'm 58, right? So I probably would see my big win when I was 90. <laughs> Patrick would probably be very happy if we won. Uh, but I, life is too short. And, and uh, you know, I, patents were a thing for a little while, right? And, and, and patenting business use strategies, I did it, so I, I can't really argue against it. But honestly, I know that Merrill had a very famous case where they went after people for a cash management system, and I think they ultimately won. Um, but it was a pyrrhic victory because you know the by that time things had evolved so that that particular very narrowly written patent was really valueless. Um, so yeah. We, we we do have that patent, and I guess we get bragging rights yeah. uh, in that we were we were there early. But life is way too short to be a troll, and uh, you know I, I it's always been my 
my uh, guiding principle that let's move things forward. Let's all of us. Right. So people used to say to me, why? Why did you write what works on Wall Street? Why are you? Why didn't you keep that secret? Well, I know enough about human nature that I could give you the exact formula right now. I could just email it over to you. Well, maybe not you, but I could I could email it to You can send you it know, to me, Jim. <laughs> right. So, and the minute it stops working, you're going to say, "Oh, well, this so Shaughnessy's a fool. This doesn't work anymore." You got to you got to scream this stuff from the mountaintops and you got to repeat it ad nauseum and you might get a few people to be willing to stick it out with you. It's just, again, it's not the way that we evolved, right? I was talking to a new hire here, and we were talking a little bit about, you know, he was like, what, why are you so into behavior? And I'm like, well, because that's the whole thing. That's it, right? As long as human beings price securities, we've got something to arbitrage. And, and, and then I said to him, you know, by the way, all of us sitting in this room are the descendants of who? The people who ran away, <laughs> not, the, not the people who were like, huh, that bush over there is moving. I wonder what that is. I'm going to go check that out. No, no. They all died. Pick up that snake-like was... object. Exactly. Right? We are the descendants of the ones who went, run, Forrest, run. <laughs> right? Risk aversion. We are, the risk... we are the descendants of the people who were the most cautious, the most afraid, the most I'm going to protect me and mine, right? So all of that, and it makes sense, right? It, it makes a lot of sense. And it made sense for people who were optimized for living on a savanna and being hunter-gatherers. It doesn't make so much sense for people who can go to Whole Foods and pay for it in Bitcoin, right? Right. So, so but here we are, <laughs> and here we find ourselves. And, and so... I, I, I just don't think evolution works, but it works very, very slowly. And I think it's going to continue on its merry way. I have two grandchildren. I'm delighted to say my grandson Pierce is five and my granddaughter Maeve is three. They're Patrick's children and his wife, Lauren. And it's going to be the same in their lifetime, too. I think it's going to take a long, long time for uh, human nature to change. And it's going to require just mountains of not only evidence, but money. I got asked on Twitter the other night when he said, I'm 22 years old. Do you think that the hedge funds like they're run today will continue? Or do you think that AI will just completely put them out of business? And I was like, I think they'll continue. I said, parenthetically, as I always do, I could be wrong. Uh, But what that would require is somebody coming up with the AI and then making a trillion dollars and saying, <laughs> see, <laughs> <laughs> then people might go, yeah, I see. But again, knowing what we know about economies and everything and, and the medallion fund, right, is only open to employees there right. now, right? Because scale, right? You, you can't scale these things. And so, yeah, will AI make people like us better? Hopefully, uh, we're looking at it. Jury's out. But a lot of that can't scale, right? It can scale and make the company enormously rich, but it can't scale to the point where, you know, you, you're, you're worth a trillion dollars. Right. 
So and and like everything, it will have a failure rate. And it's that failure rate that people will latch on to. You know, somebody else was like, how do you you know, they were talking to me and they're like, they had been doing research on me and they were like, I found these like really negative articles about you. And I'm like, okay, so and he's like, well, how do you how do you deal with that? And I'm like, look, you know, one of the most unintentionally great movies about Wall Street was Wall Street by Oliver Stone, who who wanted to vilify Wall Street and of right. ended up making everyone love Wall Street. Right. And and he's got this line, which is true. You know, if you want a friend, get a dog, <laughs> because this is an intensely and that doesn't mean that I want people to be intentionally mean. I don't think they should be. But I understand. Again, we're back to human nature. What happens is for somebody who manages money the way we do, quantitatively, empirically, et cetera, we're always going to have that period where we underperform. Well, anyone really is going to have a period where they underperform. And it's always during the periods when you're underperforming that all the knives come out. Right. They just, they've just been waiting. And when, when you're doing really, really well, eerie silence, <laughs> nothing bad. And even you might have some people saying, whoa, he's a genius. I use that as a counter contra indicator. Anytime someone tells me, God, how smart I am, I start going, oh, my God, this is, this is it's the over. end. <laughs> it's over. It's over. And then, of course, so I say, you know, you go for the – it's like a sine wave, you know. Hero, genius, idiot, goat. Hero, genius, idiot, goat. And it's when you're an idiot goat and not greatest of all time. I mean goat in bad, yeah. that type of goat. Um, that's when all the knives come out. And if, you know, if you can't deal with that, then you shouldn't be in this business. Well, that's, that, that's a great sentiment to end it on, Jim. I, I, I really do appreciate the time that you've given me because I know you're an extremely busy man. But if people <laughs> want to follow you, the best place to follow you, I think, is probably Twitter. And what's your Twitter handle? Uh, just J.P. O'Shaughnessy. And you're the reigning GIF king. How do you pronounce that? Is it GIF or JIF? <laughs> okay, so I had uh, David Perel, who you might know. He's a young guy. He's doing a writing course, et cetera. So I was with him at the shindig that my new employee and colleague, uh, Jamie, put on in Washington. And I said, well, all of my kids, who are all millennials, say it's JIF. And... David, who is also a millennial, was like, no, it's not. He goes, I was with the founder of Giphy, and he said, it's GIF, <laughs> not Schiff. But, you know, who knows? It's Look, life is, is short, and I think one of the things, and in addition to gaining some pretty interesting, useful, mimetic information, I can entertain people, and that's great. Um, it, it's always laughter is, is, uh, I think Mark Twain said, laughter is the only effective weapon that human beings have. In other words, if you get people laughing at something, it's okay. <laughs> well, well, thanks very much, Jim. I really do appreciate the time. Jim, oh, I just want to say, thank you. Thank you. Bye-bye.